Let's jump into the story of the week. Many of you, of course, have been keeping a close eye uh, on this particular uh, news story. A massive search uh, has ramped up today as authorities probe the North Atlantic for a tourist submarine that went missing over the weekend on an expedition to explore the famous Titanic shipwreck. Now, multiple agencies from Canada and the U.S. scoured thousands of square kilometers of open ocean. Authorities announced that underwater noises were detected in the search area, prompting further search operations beneath the surface in hopes of uh, finding their uh, origin. Now, searches involving remotely operated underwater vehicles so far have yielded negative results as of this afternoon, but we're continuing in an area where the noises were heard. Global National's Mike Armstrong uh, is in St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, keeping an eye on this story. Here is his latest report. This is a massive search effort, basically, out of several places on the East Coast. Aircraft and ships have set out from North Carolina and Rhode Island but St. John's here in Newfoundland is really the closest to the search area. We're about 640 kilometers out. So it's become sort of a staging area for important equipment that's needed uh, to come and then be sent out. But getting it out there as quickly as possible is vital. Now that vessel, the submarine, has a shelf life. The pressurization and depressurization over and over takes a toll on it. There is something called uh, cyclic fatigue that can happen to the hull. And basically, at that depth, any little problem with the hull would be fatal. That is Global National's Mike Armstrong from earlier today. Joining me now is uh, Jack Russell, who helped design the original version of the deep dive submersible that's trapped at the site of the Titanic sinking. Uh, and he joins us now. Jack, thank you for uh, speaking to us this afternoon. No problem, Jess. Good to hear from you. So what goes through your mind? Someone like yourself who knows this technology well, knows the vessel well, what are you thinking uh, 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 today as you, as you hear these news reports? Oh, I'm very worried. Um, if if that unit's not on the surface um, and found, I don't know what their chance of survival is. The pressure down there is immense. Uh, it might be equivalent to you trying to balance a, a highway bus on your fingernail. Um, the, the pressure would be just tremendous. And like they just said, there is a um, there is a shelf life to those units. Their best chance if they've lost power. And communication is by tapping on the uh, steel ends of the hull, the titanium ends. Uh, I don't know how the carbon fiber will transmit. Mm-hmm. And it's very cold. Really, it's like it's almost freezing down there. Um, and they have no means of heat. Uh, they have to be shallow breathing, and they're running out of energy. Uh, there's certain bodily things that have to happen, and they're all trapped in inside there. Um, in regards to uh, safety processes and procedures on a vessel like that, what kind of things would they w- would have been sort of uh, implemented uh, when they realized they were in trouble? Well, they have um, they would have various means of dropping weights um, from from the uh, submersible. You have to understand that a submersible the size of that will float you have to add weight to it in order for it to sink and most of that weight that is added would be disposable weight they can they can disengage um those weights um there are weights there that are purposely uh, made for that that they can uh, either remotely or manually disengage from the submersible so that the submersible will then rise to the surface um uh, the, the, the battery, they can usually drop the battery. They can usually, they all, like I said, have a disposable weight that they can that they can disengage. Um, uh, I, if, if they're able to do that, they would be on the surface. And that's my hope that they are there. So it's, really, it's really just a case of, if hopefully they're able to do that, it's really just a case now of somebody, you know, a visual sighting uh, from somebody from the air seeing them. Yeah, if they're on the surface, it's a visual sighting. Usually, usually the submersible would have a whip antenna that uh, w- will be up in the air with a little flag on it when they get to the surface because it may not be floating freely away above the water when it gets to the surface. It may just have a little bit of surface area that's exposed to the air. And they have no means of getting out. They need external um, 
somebody externally to open it for them. So it's sealed. There's just no, there's nothing they can do. They literally have to be saved before somebody can then uh, somebody, take them out. The under my understanding of that design is that it's uh, only uh, they're only a, a means of ex- ex- access is uh, external mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. egress. What, what do you think it is about the Titanic that attracts people to spend a lot of money to go want to see? Uh, it buried uh, at at the bottom of the of the sea floor. Jazz, I just have no idea, and I have no idea why people climb mountains either. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that earlier at the office today. Is uh, you know, if you were able to do so, would you uh, put yourself in a small vessel like that? Uh, you had mentioned that it was I quite have... cold. How cold would it be, roughly? Any any sense? Oh, they're down there. They're near freezing. I would think. That's forty degrees or or less. Uh, now, in this case, uh, should these types of um, uh, trips uh, be made illegal? And what I mean by that is just because of something like this happening. Worst case scenario, many resources now required with, between two countries uh, trying to find these individuals. Should these types of things just be made illegal if possible? Oh. I have no um, input on that, Jazz. I don't know what. Uh, I have some things in my mind that should be legal and some things that should be <laughs> illegal. I sure don't know about that. Well, I guess the pull is always going to be there. Somebody's willing to pay uh, to uh, go visit uh, or at least try to uh, look at the ruins, whether it be the Titanic or something else, or desire others to, to go into space as well. So that's all part and parcel of it. Uh, there have been reports that you know these individuals have until potentially tomorrow at the latest uh, before um, they would run out of air. Is that is that in your mind pretty accurate? That's what I understand. There's a certain amount of air uh, in, inside a submersible, and there's also scrubbers aboard that uh, clean the air. Um, so you have so many cubic feet of air that you can use and breathe, and then the scrubbers uh, clean it up so that you get the additional. And uh, they would be so cold that they would all be um, inadvertently shallow breathing, but they would be have practiced shallow breathing from the very start of, of the uh, problem. Hmm. Um, well, the only means of communication is tapping, um, making sounds on the hull, from what I understand, um, that they've lost communication and uh, they've lost power probably. So manual tapping on the hull is their only means of communication. Well, fingers crossed uh, that we have um, a happy ending uh, to this very um, the story that is engrossing a lot of folks who are watching around the world in regards to what happens. And uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that it all turns out uh, positive uh, for these uh, individuals. Jack, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for the call. We were speaking to Jack Russell, who helped design the original version of the Deep Dive Submersible. We're, of course, following that story very closely as a massive search uh, continues uh, as uh, Canadian and U.S. authorities uh, look for that tourist submarine uh, somewhere in the North Atlantic. It went missing over the weekend on an expedition to explore the famous Titanic shipwreck. Well, our next guest was actually on this show, I believe it was last July, to talk about that very uh, shipwreck. Uh, Ron Toig was the managing director of Chateau Holdings, uh, which includes, of course, the White Spot Restaurant. Shaney is also one of the uh, co-owners of the Vancouver Giants uh, as well, and he joins us now. Ron, uh, thank you for making time for us today. I know you're a busy guy. I really appreciate you speaking to us today. No, my pleasure, Jeff. So what goes through your mind? I mean, you're hearing all these stories as well. Uh, you have a very unique experience in the fact you were on or in that very submersible uh, looking at that uh, the Titanic shipwreck. Walk me through what it's like inside that um, that submarine well it's 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 something that it's it's a small space if you're claustrophobic you wouldn't be able to do it but it's um you know it's about the size it's i think it's 22 feet and um once you get in it and everybody gets in their space it's it's actually not that uncomfortable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how long does it take from uh the surface to get to the depths of the of the Titanic uh, shipwreck, how long does it how long does it take to get it, down? It takes a little over three hours to get down there. 
three hours and it's straight down then. Well, very close. yeah, pretty well, but you're playing curtain currents and, mm-hmm. and, uh, so, but more or less it did, you can, you can be off by quite a ways from where you drop, but, uh, you try to drop in a position that they, they, they map the tides or the currents and try to drop you and, and do the calculation. So where your land is relatively close to the Titanic. Um, what was it like for you when you were looking uh, and viewing the Titanic when you got to, to the site itself? What was that like? Oh, it was unreal. It was overwhelming. It was um, it was uh, the greatest adventure I ever did. And um, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to get there. Um, it took me probably, it took me three tries before I finally made it down to there. Mm-hmm. Um, and each, each, each mission that goes out there, it's slated for five dives to it. And on average, they they get one. So uh, I think I had it, my last trip last year. They got down twice. And from my understanding, this is the first trip down there this year. And weather plays a big role in it. And uh, it's it's not an easy thing to, to do. So, uh, but I'm you know what they're going through right now. I'm just sick. Of, I know all those guys that are on it. I know what. Uh, and I can't imagine what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there any, uh, obviously you would have had to go through safety protocol before you went down. What was that like? What, what kind of things did they walk you through? Well, I started early. I, I got 2018. I went down to Everett where they built the thing and um, did a dry run uh, from Everett out to well, uh, where uh, the San Juans and dived only about 400 feet. But it was just to make sure that you were, handled uh, being in that capsule and that you're, you weren't claustrophobic and you wouldn't panic and and um, they teach you how to run it um, you, ba- it's, you basically run it with a PlayStation controller and and the reason for that was you know the, you can get a custom controller built and all the rest of it but then it's custom and then you know if things go wrong you have to figure out who's going to fix where where the technology that Sony has is second to none, and 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 you can have cases in there if the thing doesn't work. So it made a lot of sense, and it still does. Mm-hmm. And it worked, and it worked fine. But and um, so you learned to, to run around, buzz around there, and um, just that was just to make sure. And then when we got there, when I actually I was supposed to go in 2019, it got canceled for COVID. 2020, um, the weather. Uh, was so bad that, that, that everything got canceled. In 2021, I finally made it out there. And for training, it was, you know, basically three days of going through virtually everything that could go wrong. And um, and then when you get in there, um, they go, if the two guys that, 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 that are um, the pilot and, and the, two, two, the two experts, if they become incapacitated, they show this is what you should do um, to to drop it. You you can uh, hydraulically squeeze out four pins, and the whole base of the sub drops, and you float to the top, and you get rescued. And so, so there was a lot that went into it. Um, uh, safety safety was paramount for everything, mm-hmm. and um, they drilled it into you constantly on everything, and uh, and they make it very very clear this is this is a risky thing, and um, things can go wrong, and uh, we got to be prepared for that. Uh, you're watching all of this just as we are. Um, uh, you're pretty confident. You, you know, and it's hard to be confident. I guess confident may not be the right word, but you know, like everybody, you're hopeful. This obviously that these folks are saved. Uh, uh, Jack Russell, who I was just speaking to, you know, he, he he knows it well, and he's very concerned as one would be. But uh, I hope with the resources that are out there from the U.S. and Canada that we're able to save these people. Well, I I thought they might have found them today. The the, the banging um, uh, would seem to be a good sign to me that somebody's banging on the hall and uh, and they're going to find it. Uh, one thing I, I do question though is, is the time of error that, that that's available on there because uh, the it, it it's a scrubber and you change the the canisters um, as needed and it's really predicated on on how much carbon monoxide is produced from people breathing in there. Mm-hmm. And when you're running around and, and uh, taking pictures and, 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 and being involved in what's going on, you burn a lot of energy and you put out a lot of carbon monoxide. If you're 
conserving your energy and waiting for a rescue. I got to believe you're going to calm things down. And, um, and there is drugs on there to, 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 for anxiety and things like that to, to make sure you are calm. And, and I'm sure they're, they're well into that stuff now. Yeah. But I think the, the, the amount of air in there is probably longer, a lot longer than what people are, are, are presenting out there. Mm-hmm. They go, it, it, it's five days is what's presented on uh, normal conditions. But under these conditions, I think you'll do everything to make sure it stretches as long as possible. And I don't know if you can clean those scrubbers when you take them out and use them again or not. But I'm sure the one thing I know, uh, Stockton and Rush is a pretty smart guy. And uh, if anybody will figure it out, he will. And pH is, is, is you know, as far as the Titanic goes and, and uh, submarine aviation, he might be the smartest guy in the industry. So the one thing they do have, they've got two of the smartest guys in the world that are dealing with this. And if anybody will figure it out, they will. Ron, thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate it. All right, Jess. Let's focus on Amazon. We love shopping at Amazon, and we love the free deliveries, uh, but those free deliveries don't come unless you're, of course, uh, enrolled in Amazon's Prime program. Well, today, Amazon was sued by the Federal Trade Commission in the United States for allegedly engaging in a years-long effort to enroll consumers without consent into Amazon Prime and making it difficult for them to cancel their subscription. Now, in a complaint filed in the U.S. District Court, uh, in uh, the District of Washington, the uh, uh, F, uh, FTC says Amazon was using deceptive designs known as dark patterns to deceive consumers into enrolling in Prime, which provides subscribers with perks, as I said, with faster shipping for a fee of about $139 annually. Uh, FTC says that Amazon made it difficult for consumers to purchase an item without also subscribing to Prime. And in some cases, consumers were presented with a button to complete their transaction, which didn't clearly state it would also enroll them in Prime. Uh, And, of course, they made it very difficult to to, uh, cancel the subscription as well. Joining me to talk a little bit about uh, uh, this lawsuit filed by the government is Andy Barrar. Andy, of course, is a tech and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Andy, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jazz. So what do you make of this? Is this, uh, uh, you know, I rant against tech companies all the time on this show, but do you think this is the start of maybe the U.S. government getting serious and taking on some of these tech giants, or is this a one-off? No, well, the Biden administration has made it a, a mandate to basically go after these big tech giants, and they're making a case out of Amazon. And it's interesting because they they allege that Amazon's using these dark patterns. And these are just little tactics that they use when they're creating websites to make you do what they want you to do. So sometimes you might go to a website and it's like, click and subscribe to our newsletter and there'll be a big button to subscribe. But if you don't want to subscribe, that's a really small little button. That's an example of these dark patterns that they will incorporate in websites. And that's what the FTC is saying that Amazon is doing because it's very, very hard to shop on Amazon without being a Prime member because every time you try to go through that checkout process, it's trying to get you to subscribe to Prime. And if you do subscribe to Prime and later on you want to unsubscribe, Mm -hmm. they make it very, very hard. And for example, you can't unsubscribe on the app. You would have to use the web interface. That's an example of these dark patterns, putting these friction points in the process to prevent you from unsubscribing. Amazon's certainly not the first company that's done this though. No, no. Every, pretty much every company, every website does this. Instagram, for example, does this all the time. You might get a pop-up saying, do you want more personalized ads on Instagram? What they're really saying is, do you want to be tracked and targeted? <laughs> and they, they use these examples of dark patterns to get you to do what they want you to do. So you say, okay, uh, personalized you know, um, ads, that sounds like a good thing. But really, what you just consented to being tracked and targeted. Um, and so all the, all these companies do it. And I think that's why the FTC is making a case out of Amazon, because everybody else is going to look at that and saying, well, we might have to uh, re- redesign our websites and, and remove these dark pattern interfaces. Uh, do you think this, uh, is this a, in, to a certain degree, uh, the US authorities learning from the Europeans as well? And I'm not talking about this specific issue, but the Europeans have been much more aggressive in challenging tech yes. companies right down to, you know, what's your cell phone charger? Why is your cell phone charger different? 
than the next company's cell phone chargers. You all have to have the same uh, charger. They've been very specific about very practical, pragmatic things when it comes to tech and uh, and its impact on uh, everyday citizens. It seems to me that they they are hopefully learning from the Europeans. I, I hope so, Jazz. And I, I actually think that we need something like the European Union in North America to to hold these tech companies accountable because the EU is doing a great job. They're, they're making it so that, you know, if you have a cell phone, you could just travel to different countries and use your same cell phone plan. Like they've done so many things to, to put these tech companies in check. And I, it's about time the FTC put it, but it, it, it's a little bit trickier because these are US companies. But I, I really do think that the Biden administration is trying to make a case out of this and hopefully maybe get some competition. Like when it comes to e-commerce, who else do we use outside of Amazon? It's not Walmart. I don't know any people using Walmart and their marketplace to have online deliveries. So it would be nice to have some more competition in that space. But like I said, it's very, very hard to shop on Amazon without being a prime member Mm -hmm. because you get inundated so many times to subscribe to the Amazon Prime membership. It, it's kind of like the Costco membership yes. plan. Like, I mean, when I, when I look at Costco, you know, and I'm a Costco member, like many of our listeners, you, you, you love going to Costco. and But I always think if Costco just breaks even on everything that they do, the built-in profit is the $50 membership fee that you pay every year. You just set that aside. There's your profit built in. And everything else is really just breaking even and hopefully, uh, in their case, probably a 5% profit margin. But they're doing just fine. And I would think and this is the same sort of method that – um, Amazon is using is you know what we will make money off our our, our 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 core products that we sell, but we don't have to make that much money because we still have the prime membership. Yeah, but the only difference with that that case with Costco is you can't get inside a Costco without being a Costco member, mm-hmm. whereas you can shop on Amazon without being a prime member. But what Amazon did was like, okay, well, what we'll do is let's just turn anybody that goes onto Amazon, we're going to turn them into a customer of Amazon Prime. And they've been doing a very good job. In the first three months of this year, Amazon has made about $9.6 billion from subscriptions. And that's a 17% increase from the same period last year. So whatever they're doing is working. And the FTC took notice and saying, what you're doing is working too well because you're really using these dark pattern techniques to get people to subscribe when they just wanted to buy one item on Amazon and you tricked them to getting a subscription. And now they want to unsubscribe and you're making it so hard, like six or seven steps, putting all these friction points to prevent people from canceling it. So it's no wonder they're their increase in, in their subscription has gone up because of these design practices that they have inside Amazon. And, you know, in Amazon's defense, they do offer you the Amazon Prime uh, yeah. movie service as well. Like you have a movie and TV service where you can watch, uh, they are producing content. So you can at least say justify partially by saying, hey, wait a minute, I'll put up with them. I get free delivery and uh, I get a streaming service too. It, it, it is a good deal when you think about it. You know, if, if you shop a lot on Amazon, it is a good deal. But as consumers, we have the right to unsubscribe. Like, Jazz, we've talked about subscription services that we pay and then we forget about them. And then, you know, we just keep paying for all these different subscription services. In the event, especially right now with the cost of living and inflation that you want to unsubscribe, it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to go through all these hoops to unsubscribe. And the FTC wants to prevent that. And they want to really protect online consumers. And I think that's why they're going against Amazon. Because if they do it at Amazon, you can best sure that all the other e-commerce platforms out there are going to be watching and they don't want to get sued as well from the FTC. That is true. Andy, thank you. My pleasure, Jazz. Let's talk a little bit about uh, ICBC. Uh, now, we already remember in May of 2021, ICBC uh, brought in its um, uh, enhanced care program, the no-fault system. And now, under that uh, program, each driver's policy will cover their own claim. Uh, if you're a BC resident and you're injured in a crash, um, uh, you'll be paid for medical care and treatment and no-fault basic vehicle damage coverage will pay for any cost uh, driver incurs in the event of a collision. Now, if you're not having to go through that system, it certainly has saved you money. Drivers, on average, have saved about $490 in uh, paying for the yearly insurance. And uh, even in regards to payouts, the auto insurance premiums are down about 28%. Uh, in fact, um, ICBC paid $2.1 billion in injury claims in 2020-21. Uh, and the first year of no-fault claims paid fell to one4 uh, billion dollars, but under this enhanced care program, essentially, 
ICBC or the system itself will take care of you or supposed to in practice take care of you uh, when you are injured. It's a, a government-run system. Well, our next two guests uh, are going to walk us through some of the challenges that they've gone through uh, when it comes to ICBC. Uh, joining me now is Crystal uh, Bradstock and Jim Wolford. Uh, they're accident victims uh, who have ex- experienced difficulties when it comes to the enhanced care model. Crystal and Jim, uh, Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, uh, Crystal, let me start with you first and foremost. Could you just, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think people should have context for this. Can you give us uh, some background in regards to the accident uh, that you two were involved in in July of 2021? Absolutely. So um, essentially we were in an accident on July 20th, um, 2021, um, a double impact So an SUV crossed over six lanes of traffic through a stop sign. We hit into that SUV and then into a pole. Uh, And so I'm going to assume you were not found at fault at all. The other driver was was 100% at fault? Correct. ICBC deemed that they were 100% at fault. So walk me through what happened after that. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, So unfortunately, the vehicle's insurance had expired a week prior. Just the notice was sent to an old resident. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were advised that by the police officer. And then with the the new um, no-fault insurance, um, they had let us know that um, the ICBC was not going to be covering the vehicle, even though the driver that was at fault um, obtained their insurance prior to that May 1st. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, Jim, uh, Jim, uh, walk me through your injuries. Um, Basically, I had head trauma, which uh, involved a concussion and severe neck strain, um, muscle tension. Um, When the accident happened, I blacked out a few times. Um, So I've been dealing with... um, Ongoing vision issues, I have severe ten- tinnitus or tinnitus, mm-hmm. which is that ringing in the ears. And uh, that, that's been going on since the accident. And vision loss, if you will, um, was a result of the, of the accident. Because I had blurry vision. I couldn't focus properly. I had headaches. Mm-hmm. Um, your, your typical um, symptoms of a, of a severe concussion, but it just went, it was manifested because um the double impact of the of the accident mm-hmm. and uh, so i've dealt with physical muscular and uh, skeletal issues in my neck uh, in my upper shoulder or the seatbelt on the left side because i was the driver of the, of the vehicle mm-hmm. and uh, so i've been dealing with that uh, predominantly for the last two years and and crystal what were your injuries like yeah so um i kind of twisted my body and so i actually have pelvic portion where my whole entire rib cage and pelvis twisted during the accident because I hit the dash. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, when you're going through this new system, um, Crystal or Jim, either one of you here, uh, how does the process work in regards to, prior to to this system, you go in, you'd have an adjuster, you would talk about who was at fault, if there was an injury, obviously, uh, you know, you could potentially hire a lawyer and sue, whatever it may be. Can, Crystal, can you walk me through how the system works when you deal with ICBC, particularly in this case, with both you and Jim uh, having to deal with injuries? Mm-hmm. So um, back in July, um, the way that it worked was that people that were uh, seriously injured were actually put into I think the intention was that they would get heightened care. Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening was that a lot of people fell through the cracks, including Jim. Um, so we actually didn't get anyone assigned to his case um, for a couple of weeks after the actual accident, which obviously when someone's dealing with head trauma, Um, and concussion symptoms, the sooner that they can get addressed and treatment, um, the better. So that was definitely frustrating. And I have heard that they have disbanded um, that specific group of adjusters. Uh Um, I was assigned a specific person and we had to fight pretty diligently to get us both under the same adjuster because obviously um, I was doing uh, I was trying to navigate best I could um, for both of us through through this new system with a bunch of adjusters who were also very new to the system. So, Jim, were you in the hospital and, and you're still waiting 
to just hear from ICBC in regards to just moving forward and how things should be handled, you or your, your family? Uh, no, I basically, uh, I was taken to the hospital right after the accident, but released several hours later after x-rays and MRIs and all that. Uh, it wasn't for at least a few weeks um, before I even had anyone to talk to from ICBC, basically. Um, Crystal, like what she said, she was assigned somebody right away, but I couldn't relay any information to her adjuster because she was assigned just for her. I had to kind of wait till I get someone to kind of look at my case specifically because we had separate uh, case numbers Mm -hmm. under the ICBC. Uh, And we kind of wanted, it it just kind of made sense to us that why we have just one adjuster because they were same vehicle, same household, same accident, that kind of thing. But uh, I still had to wait, you know, almost three weeks before I heard from anybody. So when you did hear from them, what was the experience like? Uh, It was more of a kind of uh, what I say this basically what do you what kind of what do you need uh, basically so I kind of said to them I already made an appointment with a physical therapist I'm trying to go see a, a concussion specialist they're like okay sounds good okay keep that going and then I said uh, we were trying to get into a RMT uh, and see my regular doctor as well um, because being former athletes, Crystal and I, we kind of we take care of our bodies um, as much as possible. So we kind of know that if we have an injury, we need to get treatment right away mm-hmm. uh, to get that process rolling. Um, so they said, okay, uh, sounds like you're doing the right things. And they kind of just kind of just left us alone in, in the simplest forms, basically. But they wanted documentation of everything. And and they wanted to make sure that we we're seeing the right person. Um, I probably see a, a concussion specialist. Um, they wanted me to go see someone up under their care or something like that. And mm-hmm. I said, no, I wanted to see this person because this one, this person was recommended to me. So seeing our own people that we want to see, it was a, it was a little bit of a struggle. Um, and then having to keep going to see them and getting approval of, of the, of the sessions that we, that I needed specifically to continue on my, my therapy basically. So every time I would have to, you know, ask for more sessions uh, to see my concussion specialist, I would have to go through an approval process and it was just, okay, well, you know, it takes a couple of weeks and then uh, I would have an adjuster um, that was assigned to us and then he left and then I would have to wait for another adjuster. So it was just kind of this ongoing Ferris wheel of, of people in delays and things. Crystal, when you dealt with the adjuster, we just heard uh, Jim give us a sense of his experience. Did you have a sense that these adjusters or these ICBC employees were, did you feel that they were there for you, that they were advocating for you? Um, I would say absolutely not. Um, There was constant questions. You know, our medical professionals are saying we need this type of treatment and they're pushing back. Well, explain why, Um, you know, in medical terms. I am in sales. I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a lawyer. Um, And so trying to relay that information from our practitioners was quite difficult. Um, We would get very often messages from the ICBC adjusters saying that they were up to 14 business days behind in replying to emails. Um, and so if that's the case, obviously, uh, treatment was not getting handled in a timely matter. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Crystal Bradstock and Jim Wolford, both are accident victims uh, and have um, a lot of experience uh, with the ICBC's new enhanced care model, which uh, was introduced in May of 2021. Uh, and there are challenges, uh, that is for sure, uh, with any new system. Uh, but ultimately, it was brought in uh, so that we could get away from our adversarial system, number one, where it's uh, victims are heavily reliant on trial lawyers uh, to fight uh, for their cause, which has, of course, led to, uh, according to ICBC and the government, uh, you know, significant amount of dollars when it comes to payout uh, for uh, injury claims. 
Uh, but many have said, we have uh, those trials and we relied on trial lawyers because many people felt that their uh, needs were not being met by ICBC. Uh, Crystal, let me go back to you for a second. The issue of um, the, the need for this enhanced care model, uh, as I said, came because you know legal actions were driving up costs, significant amount of costs, uh, and the system could not continue the way it was. And so hence they brought in the enhanced uh, care uh, the system. Your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, there's those as, as um, I guess, uh, rate payers. Uh, you know, people are going to look at their own ICBC um, um, uh, invoice and say, look, I've been fortunate up in an accident. All I see are savings. I'm paying on average about $490 less than what I was paying under the old system. Uh, but they haven't had to deal with the enhanced care system. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it is the right way to go? Or do you think we need now to really look at maybe uh, tweaking the system or making some fundamental changes based on what I've been hearing from from you and from Jim? Mm -hmm. So I think fundamental changes are definitely necessary. Um, It's, it's, I guess, nice to hear that ICBC is doing so well uh, financially, um, but currently they owe us uh, over $85,000 and we're out an additional 130 just because of the... um, the medical payments that we've had to incur on top of what what they're actually covering. Um, do I think that the intention of the enhanced care model is good? Yes, of course, people need to get treatment. Um, that's going to put less of a strain on society. Um, but when they're capitalizing on certain things like income replacement and not paying out um, for the first six months, you know, right after COVID when so many people lost their jobs. So Mm -hmm. um, it's it's really just, it's tough to see. Um, Uh, Jim, did, did did you at any point or do you feel at any point that the the individuals there that you deal with on a regular basis at ICBC do you feel that they're on your side that they're really genuinely trying to help you or is it or do you find it too bureaucratic and at the end of the day they are still beholden to the system the corporation and their needs rather than yours uh, I truly believe that they they do want to help mm-hmm. uh, but I think they're handcuffed with the system. Um, I believe that there's some policies hidden in the ICBC uh, that some of these adjusters and people that, you know, have to follow. And they have to answer to, you know, their managers and their managers and their managers, that kind of thing. But truly, I I believe deep down they do want to help, but I believe that they're just so restricted on what they can do and what they can say and how how, how they can provide uh, certain uh, things to, you know, the injured people out there. You know, it's not just about, um, you know, what you said earlier about the lawyers going in and, 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 and suing the other people. It's the new enhanced care program now is just putting all that person on the, uh, all that responsibility on the injured person. Mm-hmm. So they, and Crystal and I have been struggling, you know, through that system where, in the past, it was the lawyers that did all that stuff uh, on behalf of the client. You know, yeah, they're they're you know getting the payments, but you know, Crystal and I spent hours and hours and hours filling out forms, uh, reimbursement forms, uh, emails, phone calls, uh, and you know, when you look at that part of it, that's a that's a lot of time. Yeah, and it takes it, it's draining. You know, um, for any individual and. I, we both have said uh, we can't imagine anyone who's maybe had a more serious accident than us, and they're a single single person and trying to navigate through the system. It is I can't even imagine because the struggles that we have gone through mm-hmm. is it'll it, it would just spin your head, you know, and trying to recover and uh, and deal with all this is, is a really it's really heavy. Yeah. Jim, Crystal, I really appreciate you making time for us today to speak to our audience about uh, this very important uh, public policy issue uh, when it comes to uh, care, especially those who are victims uh, of accidents. Uh, And we do have to find a better system that finds a middle ground here that that doesn't put so much stress on accident victims uh, to fight for their rights. Uh, It has to be simpler than that and easier than that. So thank you so much today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us.
Let's talk a little bit about National Indigenous Peoples Day uh, today. And it's always important to tell stories that on a day like today that perhaps are out of the norm or at least speak to um, Indigenous people and their culture and their community and just interesting stories uh, that you often don't hear enough of uh, here in, uh, in in the media. Joining me now, of course, is our contributor, Jerry Merritt Judson. And she's got this amazing story on a small business here in Vancouver. I do indeed. It is called Bangin' Bannock. So it is an e-commerce business where these two wonderful Indigenous ladies sell Bannock mix to mm-hmm. sell, send it through the mail. They've sent it, I mean, in the Lower Mainland, obviously. There's one on the way to my house pretty soon. <laughs> but uh, they also, as far away as New Zealand. So I, I spoke with them yesterday about uh, their identity, the origin of their Bangin' Bannock business. Plus, they gave me a lesson in the origins of Bannock. So my name is Destiny Kustay. I am a Cinnaboy Nakoda on my mother's side. I'm from White Bear First Nations. And then on my father's side, he's Norwegian and German. So a little bit of a mix there. And I'm Kelsey Kutz. I'm Irish and Scottish on my mom's side. And I'm Nikosley and Cree on my dad's side. Um, and unknown. There's some also unknown over there as well. So I'm quite a, a mutt. I was really lucky to be raised around my culture because my dad did do all of that hard hard work himself and his youth to reconnect and bring us closer to our families. How did you meet and then how did you start up uh, Bang and Bannock? <laughs> Go ahead, Destiny. Take it away. So we once the pandemic hit, we joined a program. It was an Indigenous Youth Entrepreneur Program. So it was all online. 45 days, you were partnered up with complete strangers. Again, this is all virtual. We're not meeting <laughs> And this is all just through, like, Zoom and text and all of that stuff. Um, and then you had the rest of the, the time in the program to come up with a business, and it had to be e-commerce-based. Because, again, we're in the pandemic. So a passion of ours is just Bannock. It's very cultural food to us. We both had connections to Bannock. We both love Bannock. We were both raised on Bannock. So it was the easy, let's do Bannock. So then we had to think of a way, how do we make e-commerce? Right? How how do we create something that can be shipped out and sent to our customers? So then we came up with the idea of the bag of bannock. So we put our family recipes together. We mushed them together. The recipes are very vague. When we talk about our family recipes, <laughs> it's like a handful of this, a scoop of that, a pinch of this. They're not. Touch it until the ancestors whisper to make you stop. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so... We had to really kind of go back and forth and test out the recipe. And by we, Destiny means herself. She took all of the all of the family recipes right off the get go. The very first mix that she put together of our family recipes was perfect, and we haven't had to redo it once. I think this is what you're meant to do. That's uh, that's incredible. I, I have love that to story. agree. I constantly say that it's like it feels really organic. Like you said, like it kind of seems like the timing on some things are just really perfect. I think Bang & Bannock's been a really beautiful, beautiful blessing. What is your favorite recipe involving Bannock? Ooh, good question. I think it would probably be the taco just because... Like, Me I too. <laughs> remember going to powwows and... Or like it was like a birthday or like a good celebration where you would get the the Bannock taco. Yeah, I think it's the same for me because we've tried all kinds of different delicious like combos. We have like cinnamon buns and stuffed Bannock and Bannock Benedict and Bannock burgers. And like we've really kind of tried Bannock donuts and Bannock bites and like all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, because it is such a cultural food and like Destiny mentioned before that's a really that's why we chose Bannock is because it is such a cultural food it's not a traditional food it's not a traditional indigenous food at all it's something that was born out of um, resilience and survival Bannock Bannock didn't exist in Turtle Island before contact those ingredients weren't available to our nation before commodity boxes so when we were put on reservations and the lifestyle was taken away we were introduced government commodity boxes which have like sugar and and processed flour and baking powder and yeast and all of this stuff that we don't normally work with, which is also why Bannock, I think, is really diverse across Turtle Island is because everyone's commodity boxes were slightly different too. So when we talk about Bannock, it's like it's really special to us. It's a really cultural food. It, it represents celebration. It represents resilience. It represents survival. It represents family and beauty and bringing all kinds of stuff together. But at the same time, it's absolutely not a traditional food. Uh, Destiny and Kelsey, you can just feel their energy and their chemistry. 
Absolutely. They, Sorry. <laughs> and they didn't they didn't know each other prior to this. They sort of got just paired up. Yeah, they just got paired up. They were complete strangers. I guess it was nice because it was all over, I think, British Columbia. So you could have been paired with somebody if you were there, but somebody was up in like Terrace, then mm-hmm. you couldn't meet. But they were both in the lower mainland. So they got to actually meet up and like um, and go over stuff like in person, which mm-hmm. I guess was was super helpful. And then people kept on placing orders after the after the program was done. So they're like, well, I guess we better run with it. They like our band. <laughs> mix so in this case you ordered online and is it do you just add water when you get it, is it, is it do you have to add much to i believe it's my understanding they yeah, add it's kind of just like like uh, getting a betty crocker cake mix you just like toss in a couple liquid components and then you can either fry it up which i fully intend to do uh-huh. or you can bake it and it looks really fluffy and puffy when you when you throw it in the oven oh okay yeah i was just looking at their website right now it just says olive oil and water yeah there you go beautiful there thank you for doing you the go. research <laughs> no, i wanted to check that out i was listening to them i go you know it makes sense they got bannock tacos as well oh. look at that look at that i know right and uh also they did have a very exciting announcement for us in light of it being national indigenous people's day yeah, one thing we're really, really excited about is that today we're going to be releasing two $2,000 grants for new Indigenous startup businesses. So when we talk about community and we talk about wanting to give back, we've saved up 10% of our profits to help two different Indigenous businesses with their startup or with their new business. We're so excited to be giving back. And those ones we don't want paid back. Those are like, take the cold hard cash, get your stuff started. If you want any support, then we're here for you. We're ready to offer mentorship or whatever that looks like in order to to get your dream going. Really, really excited about that. Hey, there you go. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. Yes, indeed. Good for them. That is such a great story. And of course, if you want to learn more about uh, this mix, you can go to bangandbannock.ca. It's B-A-N-G-I-N, no G, Bannock, banging, Bannock, uh, dot C-A. Jerry, thank you. Thank you, Jazz. We talked about ICBC's Enhanced Care Program, which was launched in May of 2021, uh, the no-fault uh, system. Uh, and as I said, you know, if you haven't been in an accident, uh, you're probably liking it. Uh, you've got, um, you know, money sent back to you in regards to uh, premiums. I think the average is about $490 that uh, the average person is now saving when it comes to premiums. And also injury claims, uh, the, the the big cost when it comes to trial lawyers have come down in 2020, 2021. That fiscal year, $2.1 billion paid out injury claims the year after that. Uh, first year of no-fault claims uh, paid fell to $1.4 billion. Now, on paper, that sounds great. But if you've been in an accident, you are now being taken care of by this big uh, bureaucratic system. Does it work for you? Call us on our buzz line. I do want to hear from you, those who have navigated through the Enhanced Care Program. Uh, if it's been a positive or negative experience, we've been hearing from some of our listeners during this show, 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-2899. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about ICBC's enhanced care model is Christine Bradstock. She's a former CEO of the Physiotherapy Association of British Columbia. Christine, thank you for joining us. No, good evening, John. Thank you for having me. Uh, your thoughts, first and foremost, uh, from where we where we were pre this program being launched and today. Uh, give me a snapshot of where you think the system's at. Well, uh, as you uh, probably recall, in, in February of 2020. John Horgan and David EBN, myself, announced these changes that were going to go live on April 1st in 2020. And then that second iteration came out in May of 2021. Mm -hmm. And there were changes made from that first iteration to the second iteration. Um, And the whole intent of this was, you know, to provide the care that people would need in order to be able to get better or at least back to, you know, as close to pre-accident health as possible. And also to provide any of the benefits that were listed within that enhanced care model Mm -hmm. so that they would not have to sue. And that's why that right to sue was taken away Mm -hmm. because they were going to be given that. So it's an unfortunate situation was that this was rolled out extremely quickly and it's as if the plane took off before it was built 
right? There were many, many employees at ICBC who worked within that litigious system Mm -hmm. who transferred over or maybe new employees who were not fully aware of the benefits that were provided to those that were injured. And so there there was certainly a lot of confusion and uh, a lot of processes that were not in place early on. When you're there with the then um, minister, Minister Eby and uh, Premier John Horgan, and, and, and full disclosure here, I was ICBC critic at one point too as a, as a BC Liberal MLA at the time, so I want to put that out there as well. So I have some understanding as an as ICBC yeah. critic at the time. But in your mind, uh, the system, the, the old system, was broken. I mean, for you to be there to show support with the Premier and the Attorney General, you felt the old system, the litigious system with trial lawyers – the system itself was broken. Well, what we certainly saw, and, you know, as uh, as the association that represents physiotherapists, and mm-hmm. certainly, uh, you know, that's a regulated medical profession uh, who would work very closely with those people that are injured in motor crashes. We saw that a lot of them would come and receive some care, but then would not get that fulsome care that they needed to recover to a, a, a close to a pre-accident or, or even better state than, than they were in before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with this system, providing that care, and that care is, the intent of enhanced care was so that the care would be there for as long as they needed it mm-hmm. and as much as they needed and and so that would mean and that's why we worked on that pre-approved list so so you would you are allowed to go to uh, the listed therapists and get those pre-approved visits without having to, to talk to someone at ICBC. Mm-hmm. You can go right away. And so that's something that we worked very hard to get. And that's why some therapists, have, you know, um, therapies have a different number of visits over the 24 weeks. So, mm-hmm. um, so that that's a really good piece. But now what we're seeing is that there is the need for more visits very often and and with a lot of, of people who are injured in motor vehicle crashes, they need more visits. And so those are the visits that then need to be uh, asked for of the adjusters. So mm-hmm. y- your therapist will ask for more visits. And, um, and the intent of that was that the adjuster would listen to and uh, take the word of the medical professional that that person needed more treatments. Maybe it's five, maybe it's 10, maybe it's another session and then another reassessment as to what they would need ongoing. Even so with this presence, even with this presence, uh, even with this presence, my apologies, my, uh, even with this present system, uh, there are still going to be cost challenges here. Do you feel that ICBC now is still falling under that trap where obviously they've got a, you know, nothing is indefinite in regards to costs here, but at the same time, it seems to me that ICBC, you're certainly based on our last interview with uh, Crystal and Jim, as someone who they've been victims of accidents, but they feel that they have to advocate for themselves, and that yeah. and it's not and and the ICBC employees that they're dealing with, they're not bad people. Uh, I think they're trying to do their best, but the way the system has been set up, it seems like the priority still seems to be the fiscal reality for ICBC. And I'm not saying that shouldn't be a part of the the, the discourse and the decision making, but as you say, there needs to be more treatment. So how do we fix the system? Because it seems to be set up where it is adversarial, a little different now in this case, where Crystal and Jim have to advocate for their care when in the past, to a certain degree, a judge has decided for them. Mm-hmm. So I think there's two parts to that uh, fiscal piece. So, so there are some cost savings that ICBC is, a, you know, uh, is experiencing. It's it's interesting because we just moved from British Columbia to Ontario. Mm-hmm. We paid for the same two vehicles, uh, approximately three thousand one hundred dollars for insurance. We just insured those same two vehicles here, and the cost for the two vehicles is one thousand two hundred dollars for the same insurance. Oh wow! Yeah. So I, I, I understand, and we were the recipients of, the, of those checks last year 
So I understand uh, the cost of the insurance piece, but also realizing that ICBC uh, is to provide m- many pieces, income replacement, uh, uh, medical benefits, other pieces that are listed under that enhanced care program. And when you look at that income replacement piece, you know, ICBC says that they will, uh, they had upped the income replacement to 90% of your, of a hundred thousand dollar salary, mm-hmm. you know, t- to simplify the, the wording, um, realize that the first payer of that is not ICBC necessarily. It, it could be your employer. If mm-hmm. you have short-term and long-term disability, that's going to pay out before ICBC. It's going to be federal government who's going to pay out if you, ha- uh, um, if you can get access to those uh, injury benefits. And so realize that ICBC is topping up those other ones or potentially paying the entire amount, depending on where you're at with those payments. Mm-hmm. So, so those are a couple of places that ICBC uh, can experience some cost savings. Um, the other one is, so how, how do we ensure that people like Crystal and Jim, and there's many, many people, because realize that there are 820 crashes each day in British Columbia, mm-hmm. and 170 of those result in injury or fatalities. That's every day. So that's a lot of people. That's 87,000 people a year in, in uh, car uh, crashes, and 60, over 62,000 of those people are injured every year. Final question to you. Uh, how do we fix this, this system? Let's forget the fiscal side for a second, because I think mm-hmm. there's a way to fix that. But just in regards to care, because uh, you know it's easy to focus on numbers, and, uh, and, and we can do so, but uh, at the end of the day, for me, is people like Crystal, people like Jim, you want to make sure they get the right care. And so they can, you know, really at the end of the day, move on with as much happiness and be as productive members of society. And hopefully their life can get back to some semblance of what it was prior to that accident. Uh, What would you like to see done? Is it just a question of access to to, to more care, uh, more therapists, uh, or is it something deeper and more structural? Well, it certainly... Uh, a structural piece within ICBC because they, uh, you know, the, the forms, the filling out, the approvals. So ICBC needs to follow the intent of their enhanced care system and listening to the medical providers who are suggesting that these people need uh, more care or a certain type of care and uh, provide that without roadblocks or more forms or uh, more, more appointments with uh, someone from ICBC so that they can qualify for that. You also see it from the therapist side because therapists are constantly trying to connect with adjusters and they're having the same problems of not getting answers over email, chasing them down, and sometimes finding that they've either left ICBC or they're on holidays for several weeks and there's no response. So these things all add up into delays. And it's the delays that often uh, lengthen the the time that uh, these people need in order to get better. Christine, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. All thank right. you for having me. If you're a regular listener to the show, you know there's three things we care about uh, on the Jazz Joe Hall Show, news, current affairs, and professional wrestling. And joining me now is our number one <laughs> wrestling fan. Oh, that's a good one. Like that's that? a good one. I, I like love that. that. You know, it fits the theme of the show. I don't know how many times you try to bring in, you recommend, you know, we got to do a professional wrestling segment. And we do do them occasionally because they're lots of fun and very interesting. And you got a really cool uh, cool uh, story today. I do. Regarding a professional wrestler by the name of Sebastian Wolf. Tell me more. Yeah. So, you know, in the spirit of National Indigenous Peoples Day, I wanted to focus on Sebastian Wolf. He is a Cree professional wrestler and a member of the Pasqua First Nation. He's an absolute powerhouse. Six foot three, 220 pounds. You wow. don't want to mess with him. No. <laughs> no, at all. And he's like, a, he's been around since uh, 2019 professionally, but uh, he's 
he's been uh, wrestling before that. I've been training a lot, and he has been making a name for himself over the past few years. He's like one of the top names in our local promotion, uh, which is NEW Nation Extreme Wrestling, mm-hmm. and he's also appeared on national television with AEW, which is All Elite Wrestling. They're like the second biggest company next to the WWE, which everybody knows. So I spoke to him about how he got a start in pro wrestling and how his heritage as a Pasqua member plays into his in-ring persona and also how it feels to be a representation of indigenous peoples in uh, as one of the first few first nations wrestlers in the industry and our conversation began with me asking him what got him into professional wrestling in the first place uh what got me into professional wrestling that would have to be my uh, late grandma she uh, was a huge fan and she used to babysit me when i was you know a little so yeah she just sit me on the couch and that was her uh her favorite thing to watch and i had no choice and i fell in love with it um was there an exact moment uh when it just popped in your head and you said to yourself i'm gonna be a pro wrestler um i think the exact moment would be uh wrestlemania 14 um when stone cold first won the wwf championship beating Shawn michaels I just remember watching that pay-per-view with my brother and my dad and my mom and all four of us were just so invested and such fans at the time. I just remember when he first won my mom just like screaming and jumping up and down and I don't think I ever seen her that excited over something. So it just that that memory always stuck with me and I'm just just it just felt like a really powerful moment. That was the moment, man, that I knew, like, in my heart, like, this, I have to do this. Like, this is all I want to do. Yeah. Now, you're, like, in national television or in YouTube appearing in AEW Dark, and AEW is, like, the second biggest pro wrestling company in the world right now. You're one of the top guys in um, NEW, which is our local uh, wrestling promotion. How have things kind of progressed or changed since the very beginning when you first came out into the ring? Yeah, when you when you first start, man, nobody nobody knows you, and the majority of people they, who have been around they they see people come and go all the time. So there's like a like a good you know six six months to a year of just kind of proving yourself and you know showing your face and letting people know that you're here and you want it. Um, but yeah, when you first start out you're lucky to maybe get a show once a month, you know, nobody wants to put you on their show. And so it's really just kind of just a lot of scratching and clawing and hoping somebody gives you a break. And then, you know, the next promotion over notices. And uh, I've been fortunate enough that it's, you know, it's worked that way very well for me from the start. Um, I was very fortunate to break into the U.S. within my first four months. Um, and I think that really helped me. Now it's it's a whirlwind. I've, I'm working anywhere between four to seven times a month, every Friday and Saturday, back to back, three weeks straight. And that's what you want. That's what I'm doing. And I'm going to keep continuing to do that until I can't or until somebody gives me a contract. I think that just makes me go a little harder out there as a member of the pasqua first nation uh you you enter the ring carrying the flag with you and does that also play a huge part in your persona as well yeah man uh i you know i'm kind of going with the nickname currently the war chief and you know my my current uh ring gear has been molded the colors and everything it's all based off of that flag and carrying that flag is yeah it's it's huge it's part of Sebastian Wolf's identity, I think, by now. What does it feel like to represent your nation in pro wrestling, in the industry? Pretty incredible, man. I'm, I'm going to be honest. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a lot. And sometimes, you know, like I said, there's a lot of up and downs. And sometimes it can be uh, a bit of a, I guess, I don't want to say burden, but it, it can kind of make the chip on my shoulder a little bigger, just just because there's, there is only a couple of us, like First Nation wrestlers. Um, and, you know, that representation does matter. And I feel like every other 
you know, minority or group gets strong representation in today's wrestling, but there's there's definitely a lack of representation for indigenous wrestlers. But again, it's there's only a few of us. So, you know, we all just, you know, got to get really good. And uh, that's that's what I'm trying to do. There are people who will message me and, you know, there's this one fan from Ontario who always, you know, messages me and thanks me for being a strong representation. And there's this girl who's uh frequents a lot of the shows in Washington and I wrestle pretty heavily throughout Washington. So she's always showing up and giving me gifts from, you know, our culture and stuff. And, you know, that kind of stuff really like it weighs a really, really strongly on me, man. It's super cool. Um, I want to just touch up on uh, truth and reconciliation as well. How do you see the progress going so far? Like where are we at in your eyes? To be honest, the the progress is slow. I think they focused on a you know a handful of things that aren't really the pressing issues. I feel like it's a lot of just kind of smoke signals per se. Just like instead of focusing on real matters like the missing, murdered, and indigenous women, and you know the residential school survivors, and you, you know making sure these survivors are looked after and, and you know treated like survivors that stuff's more important than you know having the the radio stations acknowledge what land they're on like yeah that's cool i'm i'm happy to hear that but you know that's not really helping anybody so it's a very touchy subject you know i am a third generation survivor of residential schools uh, my my dad survived them as did his parents we got a long way to go what was it like making your debut in a major company like AEW. Yeah, that was obviously one of the, the highlights of my career for sure. Because because of my indigenous background, um, I'm actually allowed to work in the U.S. without a visa. Mm-hmm. So when they came to Seattle and Portland, you know, it was just, again, uh, it felt right, man. Like it, it was crazy to just like be walking the halls and there's like, oh, there's Big Show and oh, there's Sting and oh, there's Chris Jericho and Mark Henry. And it felt right. Like when we had the match, obviously, again, those nerves probably like magnified, you know, by a hundred. But once you walked out into the arena, it was just like walking out into any other arena, you know, whether it was. 8,000 people there or 80 like I've wrestled in front of, you know, in Kelowna. It just, it was another ring and it was, it was just time to go. Where do you want to see your career go next? You know, you've done AEW, you've basically conquered the whole Pacific Northwest division of pro wrestling in the world. What's next for you? I want to build my name up as a singles guy. You know, I want to be one of those top independent names that everybody's clamoring for and flying out, you know, all over the country. Uh, I want to break out further in the United States. Other than that, man, like I said, I want that contract, whether that's with AEW, Impact, WWE, obviously. I just want to make a living doing this. I'm just going to keep building my name and getting it out there and until somebody cracks open that door. I guess I got to kick it open now. Best of luck to you in your career. Uh, moving forward, Sebastian, thank you so much for joining me for this interview. I really appreciate it. No worries, Stephen. Thanks to you. Well, he's certainly going places. You can tell he's got an uh, incredible amount of ambition, a great sense of his own history, uh, but you can tell uh, he, he wants to go a lot further. Oh, he's going to make it big in no time. Uh, if you want to watch more of his matches, you can just visit nationextremewrestling.com and just buy tickets there. He's featured mainly in those shows so you can see him around in vancouver thank you steven thank you jazz thanks for listening to the jazz joe hall show podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show on apple or google podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you can always listen to the jazz joe hall show live monday to friday from 3 to 6 p.m on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.